Welcome to the CX Impact Podcast. Speed up your customer experience success. The CX Impact Podcast is brought to you by Gemseek, your trusted analytics advisor, helping you predict what your customers will do next. Hello, everybody. I'm Momchu Buskov, host of the CX Impact Podcast and CX Champion and Gemseek. I hope you liked the previous episode of the podcast. If you haven't heard it yet, you can find it on Spotify, YouTube, and SoundCloud. I'm truly fascinated by the topic today. We will chat about how to transform your CX program by adopting decision as a service model, how to create working data technology solutions and incorporate them in the work routine, how to implement the next best action model in practice and stick to it, and what are the biggest challenges in this process and how to avoid them. I'm privileged to have as my guest today, Dr. Graham Hill. Graham is a management consultant, interim director with over 30 years of experience directing business transformation projects. He designs, develops, delivers and operates complex marketing and customer experience management projects for major corporate clients in finance, telecoms and high-tech industries, among others. He is currently an associate director at Optima Partners. My guest today is also a master at using data technology implementation to catalyze business operating model change. Graham, thanks for joining me on the CX Impact podcast today. Thank you for having me. I'm really curious to learn more about uh, the decision as a service. My first question, rather general, if you can share more about yourself, I made a brief intro, but it would be great to focus on uh, what's your path to CX field and like the marketing field more generally and why you have selected it. Okay, that's, that's a good question. Um, as you said, I've been doing this for a long time. I've been a consultant interim and director for 30 years. During that time, I've had the privilege of working with 30 of the largest corporations that, that we have around the world and in fact in 15 different countries when I last looked. So a lot of experience over the years. You know, originally I started out at British Airways doing operations research, looking after aircraft frequency model that looked at the scheduling of their of their fleets. And also as part of working at British Airways, I got exposure to their change management program as, as British Airways went through the process of becoming um, the world's favorite airline in the in the early in the early in the mid eighties. And the change program that they ran, which in my opinion, after 30 years of doing this sort of work, is still the best example of a world-class change program that I've ever seen. Um, after BA, I worked, moved to work for KPMG Consulting, where I got a thorough grounding in systems development and got qualified as a systems analyst. And then moved on to Oasis Group, uh, which is a specialist business process engineering consultancy. And at Oasis Group, I got a lot of exposure to marketing, sales, and services. The three parts that formed the heart of CRM that then went on to become customer experience management as the as that started to change the emphasis from uh, technology to the customer and, and their experience. Um, then I moved to PricewaterhouseCoopers Group, uh, a consultancy there um, as part of the CRM practice. And as part of that, um, for me, the, the, the moment when I first came across customer experience was, in, in earnest, was reading Pine and Gilmore's absolutely fabulous book, The Experience Economy, on holiday in the south of France in 1998. And I used to get up early in the morning to read chapters in the book while my family was still sleeping. Um, and it was, it was like a revelation. You're thinking, 
CRM, we know GM has challenges. It's all about the company. It's all about data. It's all about marketing, sales, and service. But there's more to it than that. There's, there's, you know, the customer has an end-to-end experience. It goes, starts before marketing. It goes on beyond service while people use products and services. And for me, that was the, the starting point where I realized this is the next evolutionary phase that comes after CRM. And as a consequence of that, then I started to look more at this customer experience. I was part of the group in Coopers that founded the, what we would think of as the customer experience practice. Um, sat down and was given time to develop a methodology for the aviation group uh, as part of that work. And really, I've been doing customer experience work and data-driven customer experience work ever since. Uh, working with major clients in finance, looking at how they do always on marketing, uh, looking at clients in aviation, looking at how they run launch programs, which are a really powerful way to manage the customer experience. Um, and looking at clients and running operations for, comp- for various companies in the automotive and high-tech sectors, where my job was basically to run this as a day job. So that really is, you know, my background. I've been doing customer experience work now for 20 years, consulting for 30 years. And what I'm looking at now is really, where do we go off the customer experience? How do we incorporate data and decision support and automation in the experience to to allow customers to get more value and to allow companies to create more value in the process by providing with better tools and better services and better products? So that's really where we, you know, that's where my background comes from, CX. Um, it's been a long and, and interesting journey. Sounds really fascinating. And I especially love the fact that you've been involved for part of uh, like major corporations such as like British Airways and the fact that then you became consultant. And I think it's very helpful to be on the both sides as there are many consultants who have been consultants for their entire life and this really limits a lot. Uh, their capabilities in my point of view personally and what I'm also thinking for your interesting uh, intro is that it's also very important to take holidays as they can really <laughs> can be uh, life-changing <laughs> and it's, it's a good point you know this idea that in, in, from my perspective being a consultant and thinking about how we can help clients <coughs> is great then sometimes you have to eat your own dog food by going and being the client yourself Absolutely. So, you know, running operations with bits of Vodafone, bits of Toyota, bits of Huawei Telfor, bits of Telefonica. You know, when you get to run these things yourself, you really get to apply your own thinking and you work out what works and you gather experience in the process which you then feed back into a virtual cycle of better thinking, better practices and so on. I wanted to narrow down the conversation now to one single thing to be morally meaningful and impactful our listeners. You mentioned about data implementing and what's after CX. I wanted to ask you particularly about how you're helping customers actually doing this and by implementing decision as a service. If you can first tell us what's decision as a service, I think that some of our listeners might not be very well informed to this topic and then to share with us what are the steps of uh, the implementation process and why this is important, of course is available during all those interactions with customers. That helps them to guide them through the journeys that they're on, obviously, and obviously to create more value for them and for you as a company, because you need to be always trading off the value to the customer and value with the company. So that, that's what decisioning as a service is. It's a way that we can help the company and customers make better decisions using data, decision support, and, and, and automation. 
And if you look at the work of people like Ronnie Schuritz at the Karlsruhe Institute of Technology and Bob Wixom at MIT CISR, CISR this is what they call data wrapping in many ways. So wrapping data in, in interactions that help create more value. And, and in doing so, it, you know, it, it's really a, a sort of three-phase process. There's a phase that looks at how you understand the customer, because if we don't understand the customer, we're going to be doing things, but they may not necessarily be effective. It's about it's a bit about understanding your the business opportunities when you've understood the customer, and then there's a phase around actually delivering and deploying the solutions that bring those things together. So let let's pick those up one by one and start with how do we better understand the customer? If you think about it, customers have stuff they want to get done. They want to manage their finances. They want to manage their transportation. They want to manage their home and manage their health. You know, these, what are what you might call meta job. And customers reach out to others, companies and friends and family and, other, and others as well, in order to help them get these things done to manage their home better and what have you. So the start of all this is, is really, uh, ideally, is to look at if you're in, let's, let's take an example, let's, take, let's assume you're a, a, a retail finance organization, a bank of some kind, and you're interested in the mortgage process, or, or, you know, you're providing, manage my home as a customer's meta job, and your job is to provide mortgages and things that are associated with managing your home. So the, the place you really ought to start is to look at the ecosystem that the customer uses to manage their home. Not only you as a company, the bank, but also the other organizations that are out there as part of this process. So when, when we did look at the ecosystem for a retail bank for the Manage My Home uh, meta job, if you like, we identified 18 different partners that the customer might use as part of managing their process, focusing on, on the mortgage part of that process or manager of that, of that job. Um, so the first thing is to look at all the different partners in the ecosystem and work out which ones you actually want to be dealing with. There's obviously you, the company, and the customer, but there may be others as well that are key partners that you want to work with in order to create a better proposition for the customer to help them get more value out of interacting with you. So you need to make some choices. So look at these to make some choices. When you've done that, then the next thing is to, for each of those part, each of those actors in the ecosystem, so let's say the customer and the company, is to look at the jobs they want to get done and how they, and the outcomes they want to get from doing those things. In other words, how they measure success. And if we look at the, the meta job, if you like, of manage my home and the job of getting financed to, to pay for my home, then there's a whole variety of outcomes that customers want to have that they use to measure success in the, in the process of finding a mortgage, getting a mortgage, going through the process of doing all the paperwork, um, closing the mortgage, paying for the mortgage, and at the end of the time, you know, some 30 years later maybe, paying the mortgage off. So by understanding for that particular customer what all those jobs have been and how they measure success, you have a great foundation to understand how we want to construct a better experience. And the reason why that is is because each of those jobs that they want to get done, let's, let's, say, let's say the job of finding the right mortgage, they're going to interact with you, the company, the bank, and others. They get access to the information they want to be able to make decisions about what is the right mortgage for me and my home. So out of their jobs, customers have interaction. And the flow of interactions that they have with you and with others 
is the customer's journey. So customers don't typically have journeys that they go on. Journeys are the result of interacting with the company and others that, that come out of the, trying to get their jobs done. So I've got jobs, I have interactions, and we construct those into journeys. And so the, the process of mapping those interactions and either drawing journeys, which is a way we might have done things in the past, and I know a lot of people do that today is one way to do that, the other thing is to use data and analytics, journey analytics, to understand the journeys that people, the customers really go on. Because customers take different journeys with different directions. And sometimes they go forwards and backwards and sideways. And sometimes they go to other partners and then come back again later. Only when we understand all of those different journeys can we understand what the average journey looks like and can we decide what we want to do about it. So that's really the first part is understanding the world of the customer Look at the ecosystem, look at the various actors that play a role in helping the customer get there, manage my home, manage my finances, a job done, looking at the jobs to be done within that and how they measure success, their desired outcomes, look at the interactions they have with you, the company, in order to get stuff done, and of course, looking at how the interactions flow and form journeys, what we're going to be managing. The second thing we need to be doing is, is to go beyond that and say, okay, so what are the best business opportunities for us? So if, I, if I've mapped out my customer journey with the most interactions the customers have with us, and of course we have with them as well, because it's a two-way street, then I'm looking to identify the key events in that journey from my perspective and the key triggers in the journey from the customer's perspective. And these things being things where we can do something. An event or a trigger where we can actually do something to help the customer get their stuff done, their jobs done, and help us to get our jobs done. Customers want finance to pay for their house. We want to sell them a mortgage in order to be able to do that. We've both got jobs and they're mutually aligned. If we can identify the key triggers, then we can start to identify how we can improve them. So the customers get their stuff done and we get our stuff done. And things that, you know, the things we can do to influence customer behavior. So what's the right data we need to be able to identify the triggers occurred? It sounds quite easy, but actually sometimes it isn't. Sometimes these things are quite complicated. It's not only an, an event has, occurs at the moment in time, but also other things need to occur in order to be able to create a valid trigger that we can use to influence the customer. We need to understand how we support the decision with appropriate tools. Now, tools might include communications. You know, so a, a communication is packaged data, a, a piece of marketing communications or a video showing you how do you select a, a solicitor, you know, all those sorts of things. That's the decision support tools we can provide to help customers get their, their jobs done and help us to get ours done as well. And of course, some of those things are things we ought to automate in, in that they're standardized, they're sim relatively simple, we, we have best practices that we know to, so we can automate those things to take away the burden of work from the customer and, the, and, and make things more, um, more effective for us as an organization. And of course, once we've identified the triggers and identified how we can improve them, then we need to design appropriate interventions, which is the heart of decisioning as a service. So what data do we need to identify the trigger? And, to, and how do we carry out processing? So there's a gentleman called Dan Saffer wrote a, a really good book called Micro Interaction that provides a, a structured framework to think about how do you process information inside an interaction? What happens inside an interaction? Because we need to be thinking about how to do that as well. We need to be looking at what are the right solutions to go to, to, to take the, to the customer. Is it a piece of marketing communication? Is it a sales prompt? Is it a bit of service? Does the customer need support? 
Or actually, in some cases, do they need nothing at all? Should we just leave them to the, their devices? And wrapping around those, of course, are business rules about how we carry out these interactions, including the critical point, which we'll pick up, I think, later, about how do we do what we might call air traffic control. So if, 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 if I've got a, a normal company, a normal, a normal bank, I might be running 100, 200 campaigns, marketing campaigns a year. But if I'm running next best actions um, driven by these triggers, I might have thousands of these. So a combination of hundreds of campaigns and thousands of next best actions, we need to make sure that we don't over communicate to the customers. What we find is that usually 20% of the customers would normally be targeted with 80% of the communications. Pareto rule applied to marketing because they're the best customers, they have the most money, they have the most engagement with you and, and they have the most opportunity to sell, sell new things. We need to manage that so we don't overwhelm them with communications that are not necessarily relevant to them, even because just because we can. So we looked at the world of the customer, we looked at what the best opportunities are. Then, of course, the, the closing the loop is actually how do we deliver and deploy decisioning as a service solutions. That's a combination of looking at how do we organize ourselves. So in, in many organizations, what we find is there's going to be a team that does the business design of decisions and decision support. There's going to be a technical team that implements them in an appropriate technology. And, and by the time I'm talking about tools like Pega um, and Thunderhead that I would describe as probably the leading tools today to do this sort of work. Um, we're going to be looking at designing delivery solutions. That means implementing the, the designs of the, the triggers, the next best actions in those solutions. We're going to be looking at getting them in the marketplace and building performance management systems to go with that so we can measure, monitor and manage those next best actions. And of course, we're looking at a combination of continuous improvement. We'll talk about that again towards the end of this uh, podcast in a real life example and how we can continuously test the next best actions. Because of course, when we create a, just like a campaign, the next best action is a hypothesis about what works in the business driven by data, but still a hypothesis. So we need to test it and continually test it against alternative hypotheses through process of A-B testing that we recognize in digital these days. Um, increasingly, we have machine learning and artificial intelligence to help us. So whereas in the past you might have run a series of A-B tests, using machine learning we can run uh, things like multi-armed bandits, contextual bandits and reinforcement learning provides the ability to do a whole load more analysis and comparison of alternatives and alternative hypotheses about what's the best NBA and how to improve them that you can't do without using this sort of technology. So it, you know, in a nutshell, that's how I would approach a typical decisioning as a service process, um, a piece of work for a, a client. Um, start by understanding the customer's world, look at the best business opportunities and then deliver and deploy solutions and then continuously improve them after that. Thanks a lot to share many things. So I really want to uh, just also give a great summary. Nothing to add to it. But I just, I was wondering for uh, some of the companies who might be, I think more into B2B sector, but other who still believe they can't get the right data. To what extent the decision service model is also can be implemented for them? It, it is a good point, Christian. So, you know, companies have huge amounts of data of all sizes, increasing as you know, as with event data these days and stream data, we have the ability to collect a whole load of data about what people are really doing in real time. 
and using technology, we can analyze and use that to improve the experience. But you can start this piece of work, you know, decisioning as a service at the most simplest level, as well as the most complicated one. So if you're a large bank, the banks we talked about in a second ago, that's fine. You have loads of data and vast data lakes uh, and data warehouses with information in it that you can use. But if you're a small company, if you're an SME, you can still go through the same process of understanding your customers. In fact, often it's a little bit easy because one of the challenges we have often is that we're so we've got so much data that we focus on the data. We don't end up spending much time talking to customers about what they're trying to do. So ethnography and, and the traditional approaches for market research. So often smaller companies can get better contextual data, which is the data we really want, by talking to customers in, in a small way than larger companies that usually rely on data rather than talking to customers to understand customers' behavior. So you can use this approach for both SMEs and large corporate. The approach you take about understanding customers, identifying opportunities, and then deploying, develop, delivering and deploying those depends on the size of the company and your sophistication and the amount of data. It's a horses for courses thing. Great, great, really great explanation. As I, I think that uh, especially some SMEs also larger B2B companies, they might just say that they're not there yet and um, decide not to go into such direction and implement such a holistic uh, approach because of the fact that they lack uh, tons of data. But what you're saying makes a lot of sense that this can be compensated with customer interviews and uh, get directly uh, data. They might miss some behavioral uh, points, obviously, but still they will, it, it will be good enough to, to do the job much better than what they currently do. And uh, you know, the, the key thing is, no pun intended, but managing decisioning a service is a journey yourself. So you don't necessarily need to go through a large analysis process uh, to create a, an, an all-encompassing uh, decisioning as a service solution. You might start out on a relatively small scale with a, su a, su a, a subgroup of customers, maybe one or two products out of your product set, a series of channels interactions that you want to look at. And use that as an opportunity to learn what you don't know and to gather data you don't currently have. So you don't have to go to the end solution. You can you can go there on a journey step by step yourself, learning what works and learning what, what you can do better as a consequence. So you know, it's not a you don't have to start with a huge project. It can be done in an iterative way by through learning by doing. Great advice, I think, for all of our listeners, regardless of their company, to really start even with small steps this journey. If we return back to the entire model, you mentioned that you're getting um, out of it um, Nesbeck's actions. And if we take them together with marketing campaigns, they might be really thousands. <laughs> so how do you really select which uh, next best actions to follow? and apply and is there a way to really pick up the ones that make the most sense what, what you're really talking about is is the process of triage if you like for next best actions or for, or for decisions as a service as you say a, a retail bank might be running one to two hundred or, or even more campaigns and if they're reasonably developed in their next best actions they might have a thousand nbas or more as well running at the same time so we've got two things we need to be doing, one which I'll cover now and one, one which is probably a topic for another a, a separate a separate podcast. The, the one I want to pick up now is, is how do you select the right NBAs to develop or the right decisions as a service to develop 
bearing in mind once you get started with this, my experience is once you get started implementing this sort of work and the business sees a success um, that it delivers for them and their ability to manage customers in real time, then suddenly everybody's knocking at your door asking you to help them with their decisioning as a service. And so the demand massively outstrips the supply of the ability to deliver. So you have to make difficult choices. You have to do triage. And there's a, there's a sort of structure in a process that's evolved over time to do this in the best way. Recognise that we can't do everything. One of those you know, is recognising that if people are coming to make a request to help them to develop their decisioning as a service, they need to, we need to have a standardised way to specify information we would need to be able to assess whether it's worthwhile doing or not because not uh, not all you know not all decisions are equally valuable to the business or to customers so that one of the things we would introduce is a standardized let's just call it data collection form I mean, how, how boring is that a standardized data collection form which we use to specify from the business side when they want to start to do uh, to to develop a new decision as a service and if they want us to be able to process that they need to complete it and it needs to be submitted to a standardized process. What we want to try and avoid is people putting things in from the, through the side door and the windows. We've got a structured process to bring everything in through the front door. Um, in order to get that to work really, really well, what we've found is you have to work closely with the business. So expecting them to fill in forms in order to be able to request a decision in the service is one thing, but it's much better to actually embed through training or through access to a business analyst who has been given a bit more support so that the business knows what we're looking for when we are going to select the, the winning decisions and knows how we're going to make in that process and they can make sure that their submissions are fit for purpose. Having done that, then obviously we're going to be receiving far more decisions than we can possibly develop. So we need a scoring process. And there are a variety of different ones that you can use according to your sophistication and how you do things. If you're an agile outfit, say you're using SAFE uh, as an agile methodology, then you might use weighted shortest job first as a way to identify the, the right decisions to, to develop. And that, of course, needs means you need to understand a bit about the value of that decision to the business and the amount of effort required in time in order to be able to develop that, which allows you to do your, your weighted shortest job first calculation. I'm not a huge fan of WSGF because it's quite it's, it's very parsimonious. It doesn't, doesn't cover much information. So I prefer to prioritise around a series of weighted factors that the business decide is, is critical for it. So out of that then comes a, a, a list of priority decisions to be developed and some of the ones that aren't quite so high priority. Then we can then um, push those through a standardised process of either scheduling for development or having a development stack, again according to which approach you're taking to develop these things that allows the best NBAs to focus on first and, and the other ones to sit in the step for development at a later point in time. One, th one thing to note though, some decisions are absolutely critical for the business. They are high volume, they're high value or they're high risk. They might need a bit more triage than other ones. You might actually have a forum that we reach regularly to assess these high volume value risk decisions and decide what to do with them. And of course, if, if because of their critical and strategic, then they go through the same process, but they get a higher priority in development. So that, you know, in a nutshell, that's how we do triage for uh, decisioning. And it's very interesting that you apply also some techniques coming from Agile and 
you can implement them here. I was wondering once the specific uh, MBA is uh, applied and uh, about the next step, how do you measure its ROI and uh, how do you decide if something is there to stay? I mean, what's the dynamic of this process? How often it should be done? That's a good question. So if we go back to our weighted shortage job first method and approach for um, scheduling and prioritizing decisions, then that depends upon you understanding the value of that decision to the business. That depends upon the business itself who's making a submission or request, understanding what the impact of that decision will be made, will have on business success. So success for the customer, because they need to get something out of it, and clearly success for the business. That means they need to go through the process of understanding in the customer's journey and that particular interaction. If I can improve that interaction, whether through adding data, uh, decision support like communications uh, or automation, what's going to be the impact? Will, how much will it increase revenue? How much will it decrease operating costs? How much will it reduce risk? Will it give me a temporary competitive advantage that, that others, you know, other competitors can't achieve? That's the business's job to understand that and as part of its process. And of course, the proof of the pudding is when we implement the decision as an NBA, whatever it may be, we start to measure, monitor, and manage that decision, and, and obviously enter into the improvement process. So we've got a, a theoretical bit at the, the front end, which happens to choose which to develop, and then the continuous improvement of decisions in the marketplace after being put into uh, operation. It all sounds really great. Our model, the different steps, and how you can easily implement them, or I mean, not so easily, but at least it's feasible to do it, taking small steps uh, or starting with a bigger approach and uh, huge implementation. I wanted to ask you also about the challenges that companies have faced in this process, as well as you in such engagements as a consultant. I think this would be also super helpful to know uh, what are the challenges and why not to try to avoid some of them. Yeah, that's a very good question. So obviously challenges, things we need to manage. So the good thing about often we understand what the challenges are going to be in advance. And so we should be able to mitigate those challenges part of our program of, you know, program of work and program management processes so they don't occur in the first place. But I think if I think about it, there are probably five key challenges that I see time and time again in these sort of projects. The first one is about do we really understand our customers? Do we know who our customers are? Do we know what they're trying to get done, their jobs and their desired outcomes? Do we know how they interact with us and with others? Um, and do, do we know how those interactions flow into journeys that customers have been on? So often my experience is that although every company says they are customer centric and customer is important to us, the reality is often a little bit different. The customers is necessary, but it's not particularly important. They're focused on themselves rather than the customer. So often the, one of the biggest challenges is actually getting them to, to think about and understand the world of the customer. You know, spend some time in the shoes of their customers, as it were, as a foundation for doing all this work. Because if you don't, the, the, the chances that you spend a lot of time doing things that don't mean much to customers don't produce many of the benefits you're looking for. The second thing is having us customers is understanding the fact we have to make trade-offs. So it's not all about taking from the customers because you're not going to be business very long. But at the same time, it's not all about giving things to the customers either because otherwise you become a charity and you're not in business very long either. The real world of business is understanding the trade-offs between 
What can I give to customers to help them to make their lives faster, easier and better, to get their jobs done better as well? And how much does it cost? And how am I going to organise that? And what am I going to get out of that as a company that it increases my revenue, reduces my cost and reduces my risk? Understanding those trade-offs, I think, is another big challenge that companies have. We mentioned data in the past. Getting the right data is also a big challenge. You know, there's data to identify triggers. It's data we need to do good processing inside an interaction. And it's all the other things that we want to make use to you know, wrap data in terms of data itself and uh, decision support and automation. All those things require data. Reality is, most of the really great data you don't have inside the company anyway. You have lots of historical data and the four C's we talked about, but the fifth C, contextual data, is mostly in the world of the customer. So getting access to that data is can often be the difference between having a, a good program and an outstanding program decisioning as a service. We've mentioned the fact we might have hundreds of campaigns and thousands of NBAs. How do we run air traffic control so that the customer gets the right message at the right time to the right channel that helps them to get their jobs done better and helps us to do our jobs as well is really quite critical and to be, to be to be blunt you can't do this and this scale without technology without the likes of pega or thunderhead or something similar they're the two leading solutions you can't you simply can't do it so selecting technology to be to manage air traffic control is an absolutely critical element of the decision of the service if you're not going to bombard customers I worked with one client that will remain nameless. I sat in a meeting with their marketing agency where one of the agency staff said, you know, we may we know that we make up to 400 contacts with customers a year, but they're not spam because customers don't complain. And, you know, people looking around the room with, with, with surprise and, and shock to a certain extent, 400 interactions a year, air traffic control clearly wasn't working because no customer wants to get 400 messages a year from anybody. Last thing, a difficult thing, continuous learning and improvement. So a lot of companies struggle with this. They, they spend a lot of time thinking about the business case and getting funding to do programs. They implement the programs. They run their campaigns and their MBAs and then move on to the next one. There's always a big backlog of things waiting to be, to be developed. As we'll come down to in a second, learning and improvement can often produce much bigger benefits for you as a company than doing more campaigns and different campaigns and developing the next tranche of activities. So those five things, understanding customers, making good trade-offs, getting the right data, air traffic control, and continuous learning improvement are really the things that I think are the biggest challenges of business today. You should start first to understand the customers if you have a gap there or you might not be aware of course of it and then when you go to the continuous learning and improvement then to improve the customer understanding one more time but uh, i think it also falls the challenges falls super logically the entire process as a consultant uh, what's your biggest win biggest win okay it's um that's always an interesting challenge so the biggest win comes not from being a consultant from my perspective, but from being an interim, running bits of the business. And the one that I'm going to look at is, is we purchase marketing program driven by data 
that I carried out when I was interim head of CRM at Toyota Deutschland and for Toyota Bank in Germany. So if you think about the automotive life cycle, customer buys a vehicle and finances it and, and drives it. Um, the vehicle average lifetime is going to be around um, seven to eight years, probably possibly longer. Most customers will then repurchase another vehicle at one of the financing or one of the ownership birthdays, so three, four, five years. So we see peaks of repurchase at those particular points in time and, and relatively little in, in between. If you do nothing, quite a high proportion of customers, a high proportion by normal marketing standards, will repurchase the same brand and the same model of car. And there are a variety of surveys that I used to look at when I was at Toyota that showed you the flow of customers between brands, between models within brands. And that's pretty much the same across all, all automotive brands and, and all, all automotive models. But you know, we know when customers come to these birthdays, these end of contract periods in particular, uh, you know, when you've got to finance for three years, that's a big event. And so we want to go through a hurry to repurchase with a higher probability than just leaving it to chance. So where we tackled this was a little bit different. Um, rather than by thinking of a great program and using data, we went out to talk to dealerships around Europe about how they manage repurchase. Because at the end of the day, you know, under European block exemption regulations in the past, the relationship with the customer and the manufacturer was via the dealer. The dealer owned the customer, not the manufacturer. So the dealer had that. And of course, dealers talk to customers all the time on a, on a, on a regular basis, whether it's through servicing or sales or through other things as well. So they know customers in a way that no automotive manufacturer ever will do because they talk to customers. At Toyota, we have this concept called Genshi Genbutsu. Go see for yourself. Don't rely on data and reports. Go talk to dealers. Go talk to customers. See what's really going on. And in that process, we identified one particular dealer in Bolton in Lancashire in the UK that had an amazing key for key program. So the idea is you drive in with your car, model, uh, obviously a Toyota, a particular brand, a particular model. You drive away with the same model of car, a new key, key for key swap, same car, same monthly payment, and of course all the other things vary. But they had enormous success with that, and so we, we, we used that as a foundation to create our program, which we, which we very quickly did. So this requires a lot of individual customer calculations, because not every customer is, is compatible with a key for key offer. Um, so you're selecting very specific customers and you're, and you're calculating individualized offers based upon their financing circumstances. And the aim is to get them to get a new vehicle and of course to finance that vehicle. This was rolled out in 2007 uh, from memory when I was head of CRM at the bank. And initially we had around 10% response rate. So 10% of everybody we contacted bought a new vehicle and financed it. To get to that point, there's a whole load of work had to be done together, engaging the dealers, engaging the field force, um, and a whole variety of internal partners to be able to make this work. But the key thing about this is why it's a big success, not, not the 10% response, which is already amazingly high for marketing generally, but the fact that after a year of continuous improvement, of relentless application of Kaizen principles, we've made 50 improvements to the program. It was completely different when we started. We'd learned a huge amount in the process. And our 10% response rate went to a 32% response rate. So 32% of everybody we contacted bought a new vehicle and financed it to Toyota. 
I could sell a new vehicle for 49 euros, I calculated. It would cost more than a thousand euros to sell that same vehicle through ATL, above the line marketing communications, through the normal marketing process. Not everybody's going to be in the market for this particular offer, but those are, and it's an absolutely amazing program. Um, that's my personally best ever module that I designed and developed and run with the team at Toyota, but the, the, the heart of success wasn't the data per se, but the continuous improvement over that year of, of relentlessly applying Kaizen. Something that very few marketers do. They fire, then they measure, then they forget and move on. And that's a mistake. Wow, that's really tremendous success. And I really love the fact that you started with the customer uh, and then you did, of course, the calculation. There was a lot of technicalities and calculations around who should be available, etc. But the idea came directly from the dealers who work uh, with the customers. And I think this is piece that uh, it's often missed and then learning and development what you said at the end and constantly improving is also very very often off <laughs> the agenda of uh, any marketer really out there okay thanks a lot for sharing this is very very inspiring story as we're coming to the end of the conversation if you can provide only one single advice to the six leaders our listeners how to achieve bigger impact what it would be That's, that's, a, that's a very difficult question, you know, one thing to focus on. But if I, if I think about it, think about all the things we talked about in the last 40 minutes or so, there's probably one thing that I think that leaps out of all of this, which is which is a difficult lesson to learn. We picked it up as part of one of the um, the challenges that we have. That one piece of advice is to really understand the trade-offs that you need to, to make in delivering value for customers value for yourself as a company if you if you take too much value for yourself which is what many companies do then they, and they leave customers shortchanged then if you, if you do that to an extreme customers will leave because there's going to be better value for elsewhere or they're going to feel a little bit bad about it because they don't think they're getting a fair deal and, and a lot of personalized marketing as it's called predicated upon you give me your data and I'll give you better marketing or better better products or better interact better experiences hasn't worked because customers are seeing that you're getting all my data all I'm getting is more targeted marketing but not stuff that I actually want so we need to understand the value proposition from the customer's perspective and you need to be able to balance that with what you want out of the out of those interactions your decisioning from a company perspective and achieve a difficult trade-off and that trade-off will change over time as customers get more experience and you get more experience but if, if it's one piece of advice is understand the trade-offs between taking value from customers and giving value back to customers. You do that, you're going to succeed and you're going to dominate your marketplace. I pleased to have my guest today on the Six Impact Podcast, Graham Hill, Managing Associate Director at Optima Partners with over 30 years of experience, directing business transformation projects. You can find Graham's contact details in the podcast comments. Thanks for this inspiring conversation, Graham. Thank you for your time. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. If you want to continue the conversation about anything you heard today or to learn how we at JFC can help you speed up your customer experience success, write us on the Six Impact at jfc.com. If you liked this episode, hit follow and visit gemseek.com to learn more. Let's make an impact on the world of CX together. Thank you for listening.